You are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. In one of my previous podcasts, I addressed some distinctions of what it means to be a Reformed Baptist, and you can go back and listen to that. And in this podcast, I want to kind of unpack one of those in a little bit more detail, and that is the law-gospel distinction. One of the key issues related to Reformed theology is that we understand the distinction between the law and the gospel, and it helps us understand categories, it helps us understand the issues of faith and repentance and how those link together, and most importantly, it really determines how we preach the gospel, how we evangelize. And so in this podcast, we're going to talk about the distinction between law and gospel. But I want to begin by just talking about my teenage years. When I was a teenager back in the the mid to late 80s and even in the early 90s when I was in college, um, I was a product of Southern Baptist revivalism. I mean, I went to every Disciple Now weekend they had. I went to youth camp. I can't tell you how many times I went to Glorietta, uh, the Baptist camp down in New Mexico. And um, all of these experiences were really geared towards rededicating your life every year at the altar call. Um, I heard things like, you've got to be radical for Jesus. You need to live a life of absolute surrender to Jesus. Um, In my college ministry, um, it was called the Baptist Student Union. Um, I remember we sang a praise song, and it had these lyrics. Is my life an absolute surrender? Is my life an absolute surrender? And I stood there singing the song, knowing very well in my heart that my life was not an absolute surrender. What if I hadn't given every area of my life to Jesus? Would I somehow be like a second-class Christian? And so as a good Southern Baptist, I knew I couldn't lose my salvation because once saved, always saved, but I could lose my rewards in heaven because I was not fully yielding my life to Christ every moment of every day. You see, I was never taught the distinction between justification and sanctification. I can tell you that probably one of the biggest disappointments of my Christian life theologically growing up is that I never heard a clear teaching on justification by faith alone in my Southern Baptist upbringing. It wasn't really until I got to seminary in the late 90s, early 2000s that I began to fully understand this doctrine. I had no idea of the distinction between law and gospel. What we heard growing up were sermons on how to get saved, evangelistic pleas, and then how to live the Christian life with absolute surrender. And so when I reflect back on my experience, most of what I learned was law with very little gospel. The gospel was given to help people get saved if they used their free will to accept Jesus into their hearts. But most of what I heard about was sanctification There was an assumption that you were already saved, and much of it did not include the role of the Holy Spirit, union with Christ, a distinction between justification and sanctification. It was mainly fear tactics 
and um, altar calls to, to make sure that we were absolutely sold out for Jesus or on fire for Christ. I remember one time asking my best friend in high school. He was a Presbyterian. I was a Baptist. We were both believers. Uh, we, we went to different churches. And, and I remember asking him, and I was kind of prideful and kind of legalistic in asking this question to him. And one day I said, are you on fire for Jesus? Are you on fire for Christ? And I was kind of pressing him to, sh- to, to show me the evidence that he was absolutely surrendered to Jesus like me. Well, his answer kind of confused me. Here's what his answer was. He said, Sean, I don't really understand the question. I'm not on fire for Jesus. I'm a struggling sinner saved by grace. Jesus is preserving me by his grace to walk by faith every day, no matter how weak that faith may be. (laughs) I was kind of shocked at his answer. And and in that moment, I actually looked down on him. Man, he's not radical enough. He's not surrendered enough. He's not on fire enough. If only he had what I have, he would be all in for Jesus. Yet here's the problem. (laughs) I knew in my heart that I was not all in for Jesus. I had not absolutely surrendered. I was not on fire for Christ. The interesting thing is that I wanted the assurance and understanding of grace that my Presbyterian friend had. I had no categories back then for law and gospel or the Differences between justification and sanctification. Again, like I said earlier, it wasn't about 10 to 12 years later in my late 20s that I embraced Reformed theology, Calvinism, and and my theological paradigm was turned upside down. So, like I said in an earlier podcast, I gave a list of what it means to be a Reformed Baptist, and, and one of those was a distinction between law and gospel. So, I want to address this very important topic Because a misunderstanding of these two truths has led to a great deal of confusion. Especially when it comes to preaching and to evangelism. Now in this podcast, I'm going to recommend some books that have been very helpful on this topic. And I will put those books in the show notes as well with links to um, where you can find them on Amazon. But one of the best works on this topic... Is from a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. His name's John Colquhoun. Now, it's, it, it looks funny. His last name is C-O-L-Q-U-H-O-U-N, but it's pronounced Colquhoun. He lived from 1748 to 1827. But in 1815, he released a book called A Treatise on the Law and Gospel. A treatise on the law and gospel, one of the best works on this topic I think there is. And he opens the book with these words. He says, quote, If then a man cannot distinguish a right between the law and the gospel, he cannot rightly understand so much as a single article of divine truth. If he does not have spiritual and just apprehensions of the holy law, he cannot have spiritual and transforming discoveries of the glorious gospel. And on the other hand, if his view of the gospel is erroneous, his notions of the law cannot be right. So right from the start, he says, you really need to understand the distinction between law and gospel, or you're going to be confused in understanding the entirety of Scripture. He also writes this, If they can distinguish well between law and gospel, 
they will, under the illuminating influences of the Holy Spirit, be able to discern the glory of the whole scheme of redemption, to reconcile all passages of Scripture which appear contrary to each other, to calm their own consciences in seasons of mental trouble, and to advance resolutely in evangelical holiness and spiritual assurance. That's really the bottom line. If you can distinguish between law and gospel, you will advance in evangelical holiness and spiritual assurance. You'll be able to understand the totality of the scriptures and in all things related to the Christian life. So we're talking about a distinction between law and gospel. So let's give some definitions. What is the law? What is the law? Well, the law can be defined as any imperative or command in the Bible that stipulates what we must do. Now, obviously, this is summarized in the moral law of the Ten Commandments. Yet, in the New Testament, any verb that's in the imperative mood is considered law, a command. Now, in Reformed theology, we have three uses of the law. The first use of the law is to knock us dead in our tracks, to show us how utterly corrupt and incapable we are of keeping God's law, and to lead us to cry out to mercy for salvation. The second use of the law is more general. It's to curb or control sin in society through a moral law that holds people accountable for murder, adultery, to basically make sure there's not anarchy in society. And the third use of the law is for believers. It's post-salvation. It is where we as believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God's law as a good rule for living, but not to earn our salvation. So let's take out the second use of the law and let's just discuss the first and the third uses of the law because we're talking about the distinction between law and gospel and it's helpful to understand these distinctions or these uses of the law. So the first use of the law. The first use of the law, or we would say the purpose of the Ten Commandments, is to convict of sin, to lay us bare, to kill us dead in our tracks, to crush us in hopelessness that we fall way short of God's perfect standard. Paul would write in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law brings awareness. The first use of the law brings awareness of sin and shows us how utterly incapable we are of upholding it. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said this about the law. He said, quote, it's a mirror to show our sins that seeing our pollution and misery, we may be forced to flee to Christ to satisfy our guilt and to save us from future wrath. This mere analogy was often used by Calvin and the Reformers and the Puritans to really kind of illustrate the first use of the law. The law, the Ten Commandments, is like a mirror to show us our inadequacy, our pollution, our utter inability to keep the law and to cause us to flee to Christ for salvation. James chapter 2, 10-11, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So the law requires perfection in all 
in totality, to all of it. Again, Augustine wrote this, the law is present only to convict and slay us. Listen to what Calvin said about the role of the law. John Calvin said, this is necessary in order that man who is blind and intoxicated with self-love may be brought at once to know and to confess his weakness and impurity. For until his vanity is made perfectly manifest, he's puffed up with infatuated confidence in his own powers and never can be brought to feel their feebleness so long as he measures them by a standard of his own choice. That's a wonderful definition of the role of the first use of the law that Calvin says there. It's basically to shatter our pride and to show us that we are so intoxicated with ourselves that we in no way can measure up to God's holy law and that we are in the dust utterly because we are, we're crushed under that weight. So the law is like a mirror that shows us our warts and all, shows us how we've not obeyed perfectly. And so the first use of the law is obviously for non-Christians to see our utter inability to keep God's standard with perfection and then to drive us to our knees in despair to cry out for salvation. And the law makes sin very specific. It gives actual names like murder, theft, adultery, lying, and coveting instead of just sin in a generic sense. Now listen to Colhoun again. He says this, quote, talking about a gospel preacher, talking about pastors. He cannot preach the gospel faithfully and successfully unless he preaches the law in subservience to it. If he be a faithful and able minister, he will preach the law as a covenant of works and will press it upon the consciences of secure sinners and self-righteous formalists. He will denounce the tremendous curse of it on those who continue under it and who rely securely on their own works for eternal life in order to tear away every pillow of carnal security on which they sleep and to show them the vanity of every false refuge. <laughs> I love the imagery he uses there. It's, he's basically saying, when you rely upon your own works, you're kind of laying on a pillow of your own works, thinking that if I just rest on my own works, I'm safe and secure. And he says, no, the law, it, it, the preaching of the law is like you rip that pillow out from underneath the person sleeping, that it shakes them and it wakes them to show that what they're sleeping on is useless. You can't uphold the law. You've got to drive the law into the conscience of the sinner to show them that they are utterly uncapable of doing it they're under God's wrath and they must flee to Christ for salvation that's the first use of the law geared towards showing non-believers their utter incapability of perpetual and perfect obedience to God's law now the third use of the law is for believers who have been saved by grace the ten commandments are still morally binding on us as God's moral will for our lives. Now again, we're not saved by them, but we're still expected to obey them. But in the new birth, in regeneration, we understand how things have radically changed. Ezekiel 36, 26-27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice what God alone does here in the new covenant promise. He will give us a new heart. 
He will put his Holy Spirit in us. So that what will we do specifically? That passage of Scripture says we'll walk in his statutes. We'll walk in obedience. So the only way we can truly obey the law of God, the third use of the law, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been regenerated. We've been given sustaining grace to be able to continually obey God once we have been saved. Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way. He says, quote, In regeneration, the desires are renewed. In the work of giving us new spiritual life, God creates in us new tendencies and dispositions toward right living. He puts his law in our hearts so that the motivation to glorify and serve him in the paths of righteousness is no longer an external force, but an inward power. So we can now obey God as his children, not out of fear or bondage or wondering if we've done enough to earn our salvation. We obey the Ten Commandments because we've been freed by grace as new creations in Christ to walk in obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit, this inward power. God never lowers the bar of obedience once we've been saved by grace. Now, the law doesn't threaten us anymore, and we're not under its penalty or power like the first use of the law, and we don't obey it as a means of justification or acceptance by God. Again, the first use of the law. The third use says we, 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 we obey God's law, we serve Him, And the law is a holy guide for living, and we do this gladly and joyfully through the power of the Holy Spirit. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, our Reformed Baptist Confession, gives a summary of the law of God. And this is um, paragraph 6 in the chapter on the law of God. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. Yet it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruptions of their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience." So for Christians, we are not under the law as a covenant of works in order to earn our salvation. The law is a holy guide for living through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's again think about the first and third uses of the law. Let's just review this. The first use of the law is to crush us and to show us as non-believers that we are utterly incapable of living up to God's standard with 100% perfection perpetually. You cannot be justified or declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law. That's the first use of the law. Now, the second use is post-salvation. This is in the category of sanctification, the power of the Holy Spirit, grace. We can now obey God's law as a rule for living by the inward power of the Holy Spirit living in us because of regeneration, because of the power of the Spirit. Now, in both uses, the first and the third, The law, they are still commands placed upon us to obey. Now, as unregenerate unbelievers, we cannot. As regenerate, saved believers, we can through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. So let's just summarize law in a big category here. Here's a good way to understand law. Anything in the Bible 
that commands us or instructs us to do something. That's the category of law. Whether before our salvation or after our salvation, anything in the Bible that commands us to do something or instructs us to do something is law. Okay, let's ask the second big question. Well, what is the gospel? Is there a distinction between law and gospel? Yes. The gospel is good news. It's an announcement of good news. It comprises what God alone has accomplished for us in Christ. So at its core, the gospel is the historical reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and God's sovereign work to save sinners by His grace alone, and it is a message to be announced, to be declared. Now, aspects of the gospel are often in the indicative mood, not the imperative mood. Let me teach you a little bit of Greek. When you look at Greek verbs, especially in the, well, obviously in the New Testament, there are moods, the indicative mood and the imperative mood. The indicative mood is the mood of reality. It's what God does. Almost all the verbs uh, that are indicative speak of what God has accomplished or who we are in Christ or, or what God has accomplished or, or our union with Christ. They're not calling us to do anything. Now, imperative verbs, the imperative mood, those are, that's the mood of command. Those are verbs that are, tell us to do something. The gospel is indicative, what God has done. The law is imperative, what we must do. Think about these passages on the gospel. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the gospel is power, and the only thing that's there is believing. Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. When we preach the gospel, especially to believers, it's a means of strengthening us and growing us in our identity in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3 is one of the classic passages on the content of the gospel. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and on the third day rose again according to the Scriptures. The historical reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the announcement of that good news to be believed. Listen to the words of Colhoun again. He says this, The gospel consists of absolute and free promises of salvation by Christ and contains no precepts. It commands nothing. It does not command us even to believe and repent, but it declares to us what God in Christ as a God of grace has done and what he promises still to do for us and in us. Every requirement of duty, all precepts, those to believe and repent not accepted, belong to the moral law. It's very important that he includes repentance and believing as law. 
And we understand that because we'll get to this in just a few moments, but the command to repent and believe, that is actually a command. And so it comes under the category of law. Gospel is any announcement of what God has done for us in Christ, the free promises, not anything that we're called to do. There's a good passage of Scripture that combines both law and gospel together, especially in the, in the book of Galatians. You see this. But Galatians 3.10-14, Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Notice the distinction between law and gospel in that passage. Here's the law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You're, you're under a curse if you don't obey the, the Ten Commandments. You must obey the Ten Commandments perfectly, perpetually, no exceptions whatsoever. And if you don't do that, you're cursed. You're under a curse. You're, you're, you're under condemnation. But the gospel announcement is Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We're not called to redeem ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. The gospel is the announcement of what Christ has done. Now, one thing we must understand when discussing the distinction between law and gospel is to define clearly saving faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are not the gospel. They are responses to the gospel. Remember, gospel is an announcement Gospel is news. Gospel is facts related to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what God alone has done for us in Christ. The gospel does not call us to do anything. Now, repentance and faith are responses to the gospel, so let's, let's spend some time defining these because I think there's a lot of confusion when it comes to repentance and faith, and especially when you hear preaching and you hear um, especially revivalism with the altar calls and evangelism and, and all this type of stuff. So let's, let's define saving faith. Let's just go back to some of the confessions and, and some of the reformers. So let's just start with John Calvin. John Calvin defined faith as, quote, a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us founded upon the truth of the freely given promise of Christ, both revealed to our mind and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So Calvin basically says it's knowledge that we understand in our minds, but then it also is regeneration in the heart where we basically believe the gospel in Christ freely given to us. The Second London Baptist Confession, 1689, defines faith as follows. The principal act of saving faith focuses directly on Christ accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Notice the words that the confession uses. Accepting, receiving, resting. The Baptist Catechism also affirms this that goes along with the 1689. 
Question in the Baptist Catechism, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Again, receiving and resting in Christ alone. I want you to understand those, that, that terminology, receiving, resting, accepting. Okay, the Heidelberg Catechism is a wonderful document that's very pastoral, it's very warm, it's very poetic. I, I love a lot of the ways that the Heidelberg Catechism phrases things. So here we go, question 21 in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is true faith? Answer, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. The, this faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. Again, notice the biblical words such as receiving, trusting, resting, having confidence. Notice also that the Holy Spirit births this faith in our hearts, in the hearts of the elect through effectual calling and regeneration. So let's look at some scriptures and let's see what scriptures teach about faith. John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This verse links regeneration with faith. How is faith described here? As receiving Jesus personally, as believing in his name. Now, why did we do that? Why did we believe? We were born of God. It was a sovereign work of Almighty God. It was not through our free will. God caused us to be born again, and the fruit of our being born again is receiving Christ, resting in Christ, believing in Jesus. Remember the Philippian jailer when Paul and Silas are in jail in Acts chapter 16, verses 30 to 31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul tells the Philippian jailer to believe. Now, it's interesting here. There's no mention of repentance. We'll get to that in a moment. Paul here didn't say repent and believe. He just, at this time, said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Okay, Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes... In him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Again, that word believes. Let's go back to the Second London Baptist Confession. In that chapter on faith, paragraph 3, there's a good distinction here about faith. This faith may exist in varying degrees, so that it may be either weak or strong. Yet even in its weakest form... It is different in kinder nature, like all other saving graces, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but it gains the victory. It matures in many to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ, who is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is very important to understand. It is not the intensity or the strength or the amount of your faith 
but faith. And it's the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. So you can have the weakest faith and still be justified because it's the object of your faith. Because Jesus is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's an, it's an important statement here that, that we can have degrees of faith, weak or strong. Even weak faith as justified believers is saving faith. Because it's not the intensity or the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And what's the primary way God grants saving faith to the elect? Well, this is from both of the Westminster Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, but let me give you Colhoun. He kind of piggybacks on that. This is again from his book, A Treatise on Law and Gospel. Colhoun defines this, quote, The Spirit renders the reading and especially the preaching of the gospel the effectual means of working faith in the hearts of sinners by which they believe the gracious offers of Christ and of his righteousness and fullness and trust in him for salvation. When the gospel is preached, that is the Holy Spirit's primary means to work or birth or affect faith in the hearts and minds of the elect. Again, this comes through effectual calling. It comes through regeneration. And when the Holy Spirit births or works that faith, what do you do? You believe Christ and His righteousness, and you trust Him for salvation. Now let's ask a question that's maybe something you've thought about, or maybe it's not something you thought about, but how is repentance different from faith? And does repentance come first in the logical order of conversion, or does faith come first? Which comes first? Often you, often you hear people say, you've got to repent and believe. Well, does repent come first and then believing? So I agree with the historical reform view, and I think the Bible teaches this also, that repentance is a fruit of faith. In other words, in the logical and theological order of salvation, I believe faith comes first and repentance is a fruit or an outworking of that faith. Okay, let's listen to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession in their chapter on repentance unto life. This is paragraph three. This saving repentance is a gospel grace in which those are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their sin, by faith in Christ, humble themselves for it with godly sorrow, hatred of, of it, and self-loathing. They pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine and endeavor by provision from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. So repentance is a gospel grace. Again, it's a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit by which we have a hatred of sin, a sorrow for sin, and we trust Christ to forgive us of our sins. We know that it's a gift because Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I've heard provisionists often say that that passage of scripture just merely means God granted them an opportunity to repent. God gave them an opportunity. No, what the scripture says is the actual repentance that's needed was granted as a gift. 
So faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. It's given to the elect through the preaching of the gospel by means of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit whereby he regenerates your heart. Now one of the issues with confusing law and gospel is when a believer wonders if he or she has repented enough. Is there some level of outward contrition or some kind of amount of faith that's required for salvation? Do do you need to repent enough in order to be saved? Let me say this very clearly. God does forgive sin when we repent and trust in Christ, but God does not forgive us because he considers our repentance a deed that deserves a reward. In other words, our repentance does not earn God's pardon. God's forgiveness does not hinge on the amount or the intensity of our repentance. Because here's the question, have you ever repented enough? Can you earn God's favor by repenting enough? Think about it this way. In the same way, our faith does not save us. Faith is the instrument that attaches us to Christ who is the object of our faith. Notice how carefully the Westminster Larger Catechism navigates faith and the fruit of faith works. Question 73 in the Westminster Larger Catechism. How does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Answer. Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God not because of those other graces which do always accompany it, or of good works that are the fruits of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. In other words, faith is merely an instrument. We're not saved by our faith. We're saved by Christ. And the faith that we have to believe the promises of Christ and trust in Christ is given to us as a gift. And historically, there have been three aspects of saving faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Now, knowledge is obviously where the mind understands the facts of the gospel, the need for salvation, understanding of personal sin. Christ is the only one who can save. You understand with your mind the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you have knowledge of your need and what Christ can do to solve that need. But knowledge is not enough. There are many people who believe the facts of the gospel but are not truly saved. But there has to be knowledge. Then there has to be assent. This is where the heart begins to agree or assent that Jesus is the Savior that he can forgive me of my sins, that I am a sinner deserving God's wrath, and I stand condemned, and I need Jesus. But then the third aspect of faith is actually trust. It's that resting, receiving, trusting in Christ. You personally place your faith in Jesus to save you. J.C. Ryle gives a good definition of saving faith. He says, true belief in Christ is the unreserved trust of a heart convinced of sin in Christ as an all-sufficient Savior. It is the combined act of the whole man's head, conscience, heart, and will. It is often so weak and feeble at first that he who has it cannot be persuaded that he has it. And yet, like life in the newborn infant, his belief may be real, genuine, saving, and true. It may be weak, 
childlike faith. You may not have all the theological answers, but if you are trusting in Christ alone to save you from your sins and you're believing that he died on the cross and rose again and that he's the only one that can forgive you, that is saving faith. Now, Lutheran scholar C.F.W. Walther He's written a pretty good book on the distinction between law and gospel. These are lectures that he gave that were put into book form. And again, he's a Lutheran scholar. Um, I agree with most of what he says. Again, I'm not Lutheran. I'm a Reformed Baptist, so there may be some distinctions. But he had some good things to say. He says this, quote, Faith is merely a passive instrument, like a hand into which someone places a dollar. It is one thing to be justified on account of faith, and another thing to be justified by faith. In the former view, faith is the meritorious, in the latter, the instrumental cause. We're not justified on account of faith as a merit, but by faith which lays hold of the merit of Christ. Again, we're not justified on the level of our faith, the amount of our faith, our faith. We're justified on account of Christ. Faith is passive. It receives, it rests. And again, we need to make crystal clear that the biblical truth that regeneration precedes faith. Faith is a gift given to the elect by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. You can call this irresistible grace or effectual calling or whatever you want to call it. And so this saving faith that trusts in Christ alone is not a product of libertarian free will, but from a will that's been released from its bondage to sin. God supernaturally makes us alive in Christ by causing us to be born again and then gives us the gift of saving faith. So even the faith that you personally exercised to rest in the finished work of Christ is not even its own. It's the gift of God. Now let's ask the question, which comes first in the order of salvation? Repentance or faith? Are they synonymous or different? Now let me recommend a wonderful book by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ Legalism, antinomianism, gospel assurance, why the marrow controversy still matters. Just remember the whole Christ. He goes back to the Scottish Presbyterian marrow controversy with, the Mar- uh, with, with some Scottish Presbyterians that were dealing with the whole issue of repentance and it's, it, how much repentance is needed in order to be saved. And so Sinclair Ferguson has written a great book called The Whole Christ. And here's what he writes. Repentance is not a discreet external act. It is turning around of the whole life in Christ. Repentance then is not a punctiliar decision of a moment, but a radical heart transformation that reverses the whole course of life. In the context of faith, the repentance center is immediately fully and finally justified at the very beginning of the Christian life. Now, I may need to define for you punctiliar moment. That means a moment in time. Ferguson saying repentance is not some choice that you make at a specific period in time, but instead repentance is really the product of having a renewed heart, a regenerated heart that then shows evidence of a changed life. And he quotes Thomas Boston, and, and Boston was one of the Merrow men in, um, back in the, the Scottish Presbyterian uh, issue back, back then. He, Ferguson quotes Thomas Boston who said, Christ should be presented in all the fullness of his person and work. Faith then directly grasps the mercy of God in him. And as it does so, the life of repentance is inaugurated as its fruit. So repentance is a fruit of faith. It's interesting. Sometimes we see the scriptures use both terms to talk about conversion or coming to Christ, repentance and faith. 
So for example, and let's talk about repentance. In Matthew 3, 2, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Peter at Pentecost, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 17.30, The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Again, this is in the command mood, the imperative mood, repent. So in these passages, there's no mention of believing, it's just repent. Okay, sometimes there's passages of Scripture that talk about just having faith. There's no repentance in there. Most famously, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say whoever believes and repents. It just says believes. Acts 17.34. Some men joined Him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Now, interestingly, this is the passage where Paul is on Mars Hill and he goes to those people that are worshiping the unknown God. And earlier in that passage, he said, the times of ignorance God's overlooked. He commands all people everywhere to repent. And then notice it says, some men joined him and believed. It doesn't say they repented. It says they believed. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This just talks about faith in the truth. There's no repentance. Now, sometimes you'll see passages of Scripture where it uses both terms, repent and believe. Mark 1.15 Jesus comes saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you have both words there, repent and believe. In Acts 20, 21, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So sometimes in calling people to respond to Christ or reporting how people responded to the gospel, we'll only see the words they believed or there was faith. Other times we only see the word repent. And sometimes we see the words together, repent and believe. So, so how are we to understand this? Do we call people to repent and believe? Do we call people only to believe? Do we call people to, to repent? Ferguson again explains the usage of both terms. This is a good quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, It seems clear that while denoting different elements in conversion to Christ, both faith and repentance are so essential to such conversion that one cannot exist apart from the other, and as a consequence, the one may be used where both are intended, as though either faith or repentance can function as a synecdoche for convention. Faith will always be penitent. Repentance will always be believing, if genuine. Now he says they work as a synecdoche. Let me define a synecdoche for you. Um, it's basically a figure of speech in which a part is made to represent the whole. The best example of this would be Genesis 1-1, where God created the heavens and the earth. These terms together are used to mean the entire universe. They stand together. So when repentance and faith are used together or separately, Ferguson's argument is that they really comprise the whole of conversion. That it's really, it's a faith that repents and it's a repentance that has faith. They're both there together. And the historical Protestant understanding in the logical and theological order of conversion is that faith comes first and then 
repentance is a fruit of saving faith. Calvin in his Institutes affirms this view. He says, for repentance being properly understood, it will better appear how a man is justified freely by faith alone. And yet that holiness of life, real holiness as it's called, is inseparable from the free imputation of righteousness. That repentance not only will always follow faith, but is produced by it, ought to be without controversy. Those who think that repentance precedes faith instead of flowing from or being produced by it as the fruit by the tree have never understood its nature and are moved to adopt that view on very insufficient grounds. So repentance is a hating and turning from sin and in a turning in faith to Jesus as you believe in him and his mercy. And so where there is saving faith, there will always be genuine repentance. And where there is genuine repentance, there will always be saving faith. So the distinction between law and gospel. The law commands us what to do, even to repent and believe. They're in the imperative mood. Repent and believe are not the gospel. The gospel is the news of what Christ has done, not a call for us to do something. The gospel does not give any commands, but announces what God has done for us in Christ. Now, the big question, and it becomes very, very important, is how do we preach and how do we evangelize with this law and gospel distinction? Colhoun writes this, The law tells us to exercise faith. The gospel presents Christ, the glorious object of faith. The law requires believers to love God with all their heart. But it is the gospel only that presents God in such a view as to become the object of love to a sinner, namely as he is in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The law prescribes mourning for sin. The gospel presents Christ as wounded for our transgressions. So when calling for a response to the gospel announcement, what should we call unbelievers to do? What should we call unbelievers to do? 20th century theology and practice have confused law and gospel, and they've added new vocabulary to what it means to have faith in Christ. Let me give you an example. How often have you heard these terms? When you hear an evangelistic appeal, or you hear an altar call, or you hear somebody preaching the gospel, words like surrender, you're all to Christ. Be willing to give up all for Jesus. Absolutely yield your life to the Savior. Absolutely surrender. You need to have total commitment. You must take up your cross daily. Now I want to give you two modern examples from excellent Bible teachers who are Calvinistic but are not Reformed that have confused law and gospel. Again, this is not a pot shot on these men because I highly respect these two men. I've learned so much from these two men, but there's a little bit of confusion in their theology because they're not fully reformed that makes what they teach confusing. And that are the two Johns, John MacArthur and John Piper. John MacArthur and John Piper. Uh, John MacArthur's written a, a very helpful book called The Gospel According to Jesus. He's got a noble goal in that book, combating easy believism, watered-down gospel that's often preached in seeker-sensitive churches. Um, in the 80s and 90s, this was called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. 
because of the easy believism that, we, that he had seen, that we really need to not water down the gospel and make sure people understand that Jesus is Lord. But MacArthur slightly deviates from the historical understanding of faith alone by adding surrender to the definition of faith. Now, I have the second edition, the 1994 edition of his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And it's interesting how MacArthur misquotes Louis Burkhoff's definition of faith. Now, remember, I tell you all the time, Louis Burkhoff is one of my favorite systematic theologies, fully reformed. And John MacArthur quotes Louis Burkhoff, but let me give you the quote from the book. Here's how MacArthur quotes Burkhoff on the issue of trust. He says, Trust is a volitional element which involves a personal trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, including a surrender, dot, 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 to Christ. He puts an ellipsis, dot, 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 after surrender, and that's not what Burkhoff stated. Here's the original quote from Burkhoff, and see if it matches. John MacArthur has taken Burkhoff's definition and left out an important part to make it sound like surrender is what faith is. Listen to the original quote from Burkhoff. The third element, talking about knowledge, ascent, trust, the third element, trust. The third element consists in personal trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, including a surrender, and here's what was left out, of the soul as guilty and defiled to Christ and a reception and appropriation of Christ as the source of pardon and spiritual life. Burkhoff does not include surrender to Jesus as a definition of faith. When he says a surrender of the soul is guilty and defiled, he's, he's basically saying that you as a sinner realize that you're guilty before Christ. You own up to your sin, you confess it, and then you receive Christ as your only source of pardon. By leaving out that sentence and just using the word surrender and then attaching it to Christ, MacArthur has, quote-unquote, snuck in surrender to Christ as an addition upon trusting and receiving Christ. So terms like surrender, yield, treasure, often place the stress and emphasis on the person the sinner, instead of on the object of the faith, Jesus. These responses focus on what the sinner must do. And, and the problem with this terminology is the only ground on which you can stand before holy God is the ground of perfection, if you use these terms. So think about it. If, if, if surrender is what you need to do, then that surrender must be perfect. If yielding is what you need to do in order to be saved, that yielding has to be entire. If submit is what you must do, then it must be without flaw, flawless. If it's committing absolutely, then there's got to be perfection. Think about the biblical terms we've seen so far. Terms like faith, receive, trust, rest. Remember, faith is passively resting in Christ. And the focus on these words, these biblical words, focus more on the object of our faith, Christ. We rest in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. The stress is not on what we do, but on who our object of faith is in Christ. And so words like surrender or yield or submit really place an emphasis on what a sinner must do and then how much they need to do it in order to be saved. So, when we word, use words like receive and rest, 
basically it's on the object of our faith. And our faith can be weak because it's not the intensity of the amount of our faith. It's the grounding is on Christ. Remember the ground for our justification is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Not the amount or intensity of our faith. We can have weak or small faith. Our faith is not the ground, but the instrument by which we're saved. Now we can understand why some people use terms such as surrender or yield or treasure because good, good motives, they don't want to engage in easy believism. They don't want to water down the gospel. They don't want to have false converts. They don't want to see people just pray a prayer. They don't want to see, they want to make people understand really what are you, what are you being called to? Do you, do you really understand what it means to become a Christian? The problem in that, this worthy goal to protect from easy believism is this type of preaching and evangelism turns faith into law. It's a confusion between law and gospel. Unconditional surrender, absolute yielding. These are extra requirements placed upon a sinner over and above simply trusting in Jesus alone. These terms should bring questions. So if you're telling an unbeliever to absolutely surrender their lives to Christ or to totally yield their lives to Christ or absolutely commit their lives to Christ in order to be saved, the question that you should be asking was, well, how much? How much should I surrender? What if it wasn't absolute enough? What if I didn't yield every area of my life to Christ? What if I didn't make a radical commitment to give up all for Jesus? What, what if I didn't repent enough? What if I didn't cry hard enough or get emotional enough? Again, where's the focus? The focus is on you and your level and intensity of faithfulness instead of on Jesus as the object of your faith. Here's the problem in presenting this as a means of salvation. If Jesus accepts you on the basis of your surrender, your yielding, your commitment, your intensity, your repentance, how much is enough? Can you give Jesus your all? Can it be 100%? And obviously the answer is no. And the reason why is because these terms, surrender, yield, they're law. They put the focus on what you need to do in order to be accepted by Christ. Instead of the biblical words like trust, receive, rest in the finished work of Christ and in the promises of the gospel. You can place your faith in Jesus even if it's a weak faith. You don't have to have all the theological answers, but if your trust is in Christ, it's the object of your trust, not the amount or intensity or level of your commitment, but the object of your faith, Jesus. So obedience, faithfulness, surrender, commitment, those are things that Christians must do, but they follow after justification and they are in the category of sanctification. There's a confusion of categories between justification and sanctification. In order to be saved or justified, what's required? Faith, trust, resting. In your growth in grace, once you are saved in that process of sanctification, should we obey and commit and surrender and train and, and treasure? Yes. But that's in the category of sanctification. 
So when we present the gospel in order to, for a person to be saved and we, and we use words like surrender or absolutely yield or unconditional surrender, that's in the category of sanctification, not justification. And we've actually placed an extra requirement on top of just simple faith in Christ as a means by which we are justified. So that's the first example from John MacArthur. The second example is from John Piper. Of course, most Reformed people have been influenced by John Piper and his whole idea of treasuring or desiring God. So he made famous, you must desire Jesus as your supreme treasure. And he's recently released a book called What is Saving Faith? That's interesting. What is Saving Faith? It's kind of a provocative book. I haven't read it, but I've read some commentaries on it, and I've, and I've read the description. So on the back of the book, it says this. Faith in Christ is not saving unless it includes an affectional dimension of treasuring Christ. Nor is God glorified as he ought to be unless he's treasured and being trusted. Saving faith in Jesus Christ welcomes him forever as our supreme and inexhaustible pleasure. Now, Piper knows this is controversial. And because most of his readers are from a Reformed background, he is going beyond the Reformed definitions of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust, and he's adding this affectional dimension, this treasuring, this desiring, this supremely pleasuring, finding pleasure in God. So let me ask you a question. You've tracked with this podcast, and hopefully you understand the distinction between law and gospel. Let me read to you a passage of Scripture. Very famous passage of Scripture, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 through 38. Teacher, what must, or teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Okay, is this law or gospel? This is law. We know it's law because it's called the first and greatest commandment, and we also know it's law because it's in the imperative mood. You shall love. It's a command. So let me ask you a question. Can you ever possibly love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? Is that even possible? No, we cannot. So the question is, is this a requirement for salvation? Or is this God's standard for the believer once we're saved through the power of the Holy Spirit to love God? You see, if you confuse justification with sanctification and you, you smuggle in loving God with your all as part of saving faith, you've added an extra requirement on there. So he's, Piper slightly turned faith into law. Faith is not receiving Christ, but now it's treasuring him as supremely valuable. H- how do you quantify treasuring? What if you don't treasure Jesus supremely enough? What if he's not supreme enough? Are you not saved? Now, the problem with Piper is that he knows he's gone beyond the Reformed understanding of faith. We don't want to be confused here. Loving God, treasuring Christ, glorifying Jesus, finding him supremely valuable. Yes, but those are fruits of our conversion. And that's in the category of sanctification, not justification. Nowhere in the Bible are we declared righteous or not guilty by our affections or love for Jesus. We're justified by faith alone. Now, while Piper would deny this, his view comes very close to the Roman Catholic view of justification. The Roman Catholic Church has a category of faith called fide caritate formata. That's Latin for faith formed by charity or faith formed by love. 
And basically what it does, it includes love as the defining principle of faith. One must have a perfect love for God in order to be truly justified. Now this view came originally from Thomas Aquinas, who misinterpreted Romans 5.5. What does Romans 5.5 say? Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. He took this to mean that when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we have this love for God that is necessary for justification. This passage does not address our love for God, but God's love for us. Now, in Luther's commentary on Galatians, he addresses this view, this Roman Catholic or Papist view of this idea of faith formed by love. In Galatians 3.11 that we looked at earlier, Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This is what Luther writes. It is the corrupting of scriptures to twist this to mean that the righteous live by a working faith, that is, faith that is formed and made perfect by love, so that if it is not formed by works of love, it does not justify us. The Holy Spirit could have said that the righteous will live by faith formed and beautified or made perfect by love, but he deliberately omits this and says the righteous will live by faith. Again, faith alone, sola fide. How are we justified? By faith alone. Piper seems to think we're justified by a faith that is a love for God that, that treasures Jesus as supremely valuable and that we must have this treasuring of him in our hearts added on top of just faith alone. Now the Council of Trent was very specific on this need for faith working itself out in perfected love. Canon 11, if anyone says that men are justified either by sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and remains in them, are also that the grace by which we are justified is only the good will of God, let him be anathema. So for the Council of Trent and the Roman Catholic Church, righteousness is infused into the sinner, which enables him with the ability to love and do good's work, and this infused righteousness can fluctuate and needs assistance through the sacramental system, and the only way you're justified is if you have this type of love for God and these good works. Biblical justification is not an infused righteousness, but an imputed righteousness that comes from Christ, whereby God declares us not guilty. It's a permanent standing that does not fluctuate, and faith is the instrument by which we receive this alien righteousness. Now, John Piper would deny this Roman Catholic category, I'm pretty sure, but when he adds love as a constituent part of saving faith, he gets very close to this concept. And again, how much love is enough? What if you only love God with 80%? What, are you not fully justified? What if you don't supremely treasure Jesus? Are you not justified? Is faith, knowledge, sin, and trust in Christ alone for justification, or is faith a treasuring, desiring, loving that's added to the Reformed understanding? So again, it's a difference in understanding between justification and sanctification. Another good work that I would recommend is by Michael Horton. It's edited by Michael Horton, and, and this is back in 1992. So the guys from the White Horse Inn and a lot of people that are professors at Westminster Seminary in California, it's called Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation. It came out in 1992, and it did really interact with MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus. So understanding the distinction between law and gospel helps us in a lot of ways. 
Let me give you four ways that it helps us. Number one, we can rightly understand the totality of the Bible and see where law is required and gospels promised. We can, just, we can see the imperative and the indicative moods and we can understand how to understand our Bible. Number two, it helps us understand the nature of saving faith and repentance. That faith is a resting and receiving in Christ alone as the object of our faith and repentance is therefore a fruit of that that comes through regeneration. Number three, it keeps the distinction between justification and sanctification. Words like surrender and submit and obey and love, those go under the category of sanctification of what a believer is to do once they're saved in order to grow in Christ. But those words aren't used for how we are saved. We are saved merely by faith alone. And then number four, it helps us in preaching in our evangelism to call people to trust in Christ instead of adding extra requirements like absolute surrender or yielding or treasuring. But the biggest thing it does is it brings great assurance of our salvation. Listen to what Colhoun says again. If an anxious and disquieted Christian does not distinctly know the difference between law and gospel, he cannot attain to solid tranquility or established comfort of soul. He will always be in danger of building his hope and comfort partly, if not wholly, upon his own graces and performances instead of grounding them wholly on the surety of the righteousness of Christ. And so he shall be perpetually plagued by anxious and desponding fear. If you don't get long gospel correct, you're going to always be anxious. Have I done enough? Have I surrendered enough? Have I loved enough? Have I treasured enough? Have I committed enough? And you're always going to be basing your assurance on salvation on the things that you do. Again, these are in the categories of sanctification, and these things can fluctuate. There's some days where I don't love Jesus with all my heart. There's some days when I haven't surrendered enough. But does that affect my permanent standing with God? No, because justification is a permanent standing whereby I've been declared not guilty by the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, and that came simply through faith alone, arresting and receiving in Christ. So my assurance is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, not on my surrender, not on my obedience. 1 John 5.13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus? If so, you may know that you have eternal life. John Calvin gives a great commentary on this passage as it relates to the distinction between law and gospel, the assurance of salvation, and the duty of pastors who preach the gospel. I'm going to give you a quote as we close from John Calvin. But we ought to observe the way in which faith is confirmed, even by having the office and power of Christ explained to us. For the apostle says that he wrote these things, that is, that eternal life is to be sought nowhere else but in Christ, in order that they who were believers already might believe, that is, make progress in believing. It is therefore the duty of a godly teacher in order to confirm disciples in the faith to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ so that being satisfied with that we may seek nothing else. It is my duty as a gospel preacher 
to encourage believers by extolling and elevating as much as possible the glory and grace of Christ. My goal should be to help people fix their eyes on Jesus as their only source of both justification and sanctification for assurance of salvation. And so the law-gospel distinction is a wonderful guardrail that helps me do that on Sunday mornings when I preach to non-believers and when I preach to believers and when I call people to respond to Christ. It's a guardrail. It's, it's a big-ticket category. That It's a paradigm that, that keeps me biblical. So again, understanding the distinction between law and gospel helps us in so many ways. We can rightly understand the totality of the Bible. We can see where law is required and where gospel is promised. It helps us understand the nature of saving faith, that it's mere trust and rest in receiving in Christ, not absolute surrender, not total commitment, not treasuring supremely. Those things are part of sanctification, but not part of saving faith. And again, it helps us distinguish between justification and sanctification, and it helps us in our preaching and evangelism to call people to trust in Christ instead of adding extra requirements like absolute surrender, unconditional yielding, or supreme treasuring. Well, I pray that this podcast has gone a little bit long, but I hopefully it's been helpful to you to understand the Reformed understanding of law and gospel distinction. I know we've kind of gotten into a lot of information in this podcast, but I hope it's helped you, especially if you're a pastor, to understand how to preach law and gospel in your sermons so that you're not just giving the people law, but you're always leaving them with gospel to fix their eyes on Christ. And so next time, may we all fix our eyes on Jesus.